Well, my name is Blake Holmes, and I'm on the equipping team at Watermark, which I'm asked often, what in the world does that mean? You're on the equipping team. Well, it just means I have the, the privilege and the opportunity to serve on a team whose whole mission, if you will, is to help people take the next step in their relationship with Christ. And how do we equip people to do that? And I recognize in a room this large, there's some of you who are here for the first time. And I remember when I walked in this room for the first time, and you walk in, and there's several hundred men here early on a Thursday morning, and there's a sense of kind of like, what are all these people doing this early? And I just want to tell you that if this is your first time, or you've been at Summit for the past 10 years, I'm really glad you're here. If this is one of those moments in your spiritual life right now, in your walk with the Lord, you feel like, man, I'm, I'm just on a high. This is, it just doesn't get any better than this. Um, the man, I, I'm thrilled for you. I am thrilled for you, and I hope you're encouraged. But if you're also maybe on the other side of that extreme, maybe you're walking in today and you're going, man, I've, I'm not sure what I believe. I've got doubts. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I'm mad. I'm hurt. I'm lonely. I'm confused. I'm excited you're here. We, we come in here and we don't start those uh, with two songs and just, just to kind of get energy in the room. We don't, we don't start with two songs that, um, you know, to kind of wake us up because it's early. We start so we reorient our hearts and remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done for us. We remind ourselves of, of what Christ said at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, what he reminded us of, right? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted, right? And so if you walk in here right now and you recognize that, hey, I'm broken, I'm frustrated, I'm hurt, I'm confused, I'm burdened by past decisions, mistakes, where I've hurt people, or even last night, decisions I've made or habits I'm wrapped up in. I just want you to know that you don't walk into a room with people who have it all together. You walk into a room with people who have humbled themselves and said, hey, I need a savior. I need help. And so Summit is a time for us, gang, whether this is your first time or you've been at Watermark and been a, a member for years and actively serving, this is a time for us to gather, remind ourselves of what God's word has to say. I'll spend a few minutes, uh, it would be me or one or two other teachers up here in the next several weeks, we'll spend a few minutes together in this large room and um, going over what it is that we've studied as we look at the book of James uh, throughout the spring. And we'll do that for a little while, and then we're going to divide into groups each week. And it's really there that um, I, I think that the greatest blessing comes. Because you get to gather with other men who have also studied that same passage. And we get to talk from kind of theory and ideas to the practical, to the real-life application with other men who are right there in the trenches with you, struggling in the same ways and um, being challenged in the same ways to how do we apply this faith. And so, again, if you're walking in for the first time or you've been here for a long time, if you're far from the Lord or you feel near to him, we all have ground to take. And I'm the first one that knows I need to take ground in my relationship with Christ. Let me pray for us again. And we're going to jump into the book of James. I'm going to set the table for you this morning. And then we're going to break here pretty soon. Lord in heaven, I thank you for these men. Um, and I specifically want to pray for those who 
who really feel like they kind of took a gamble walking in here this morning. Maybe a friend invited them or they um, heard about it on Sunday and said, hey, I'll sign up for this. And now kind of walk in wondering uh, what I've got myself into. <laughs> and, um, and Lord, I pray that you would encourage and strengthen their hearts. I pray, Lord, they wouldn't see a room of people who have it all together, who have all the Bible study answers, but a room of men who um, are willing just to humble themselves, admit their need, and come before you, acknowledging that you're good and that you, Father, uh, are our Savior, Lord. You are our one hope, our one desire. So we love you, Lord, and give you this time in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my son is 11 years old. And um, I didn't grow up collecting baseball cards or football cards. It just wasn't something that my friends did. And, um, but for my son at 11 right now, I'm learning that there is a whole new world out there for baseball cards and football cards. How many of y'all collected cards in your lifetime Sometime, at some point? All right, so see, now I feel like I'm the one walking in the room and I don't know anybody, right? So uh, my son knows a lot about all these different cards and consequently now I'm learning about cards. And um, I'm going to put a picture up here for you. And I'm going to ask you, how many of you know what this card is? All right. Notice not as many hands went up. This, for those who said Honus Wagner and you know, this card right here, collectors refer to as the card. This is the card. It was interesting. Um, I took my little daughter to New York. She turned 13 and we had a dad-daughter trip and it was just one of those kind of trips of a lifetime for each of us. And uh, we went up there last fall, and we were working our way through different museums and kind of in the corner of one museum where no one was walking. I mean, it was like baseball cards, who cares? And, uh, and it was just displayed in this back hallway. As I'm walking by, I recognize, no, wait a minute. This is, this is Honus Wagner's baseball card. And I, and I back up, and I'm like, it is. And I'm wanting to look around like I want to tell people, that's Honus Wagner. That's a Honus Wagner baseball card. And everybody's just kind of, I mean, nobody's even in that wing. And I'm trying to tell my daughter who doesn't understand. That's a Honus Wagner. Which my son would be doing backflips. That's a Honus Wagner. And you see, this is a Honus Wagner baseball card as well. And... uh There are literally thousands of these out there. One is the real thing, and one is a fake. You can find a Honus Wagner baseball card. You you can Google Honus Wagner baseball cards and end up paying a lot of money thinking you're getting something that you're not, and you will be taken advantage of because Honus Wagner baseball cards were made about 1909 to 1911. There were less than 200 made, and they think that there's some 50-some-odd cards remaining. And do you know how much the last Honus Wagner card sold for? What, is there a guess? A couple of thousand? Come on, we're, we're, we're mumbling. <laughs> Brett, it was not one billion. <laughs> But that's a great guess. <laughs> you know, we, we, 
as teachers like to say, right, there's no stupid answer. But Brett, that was a stupid answer. I can only, uh, Brett and I are good friends, by the way, so uh, nobody else is going to play my guessing game anymore. No, it's not $1,000, it's not $2,000, it's not $100,000, it's $2 million plus dollars for a baseball card. I mean, I'm going, I mean, that truly is the principle, right? One man's treasure is another man's job. Your mom threw that away. And there are not any left, and there weren't very many made in the first place. He was a um, Hall of Fame baseball player. And, uh, of course, I had to get my picture taken in front of that thing. That's the real deal, and it's worth over $2 million. And there are, like I said, there are imitations all over the place. And, you know, I'll say this, looking at the imitations that I've seen, the, the fake ones, there, there's some pretty good ones out there. You look at them, you're kind of like, wow, people doctor them and all that because they know that the, if they sell them, they can sell them for a lot of money. But the reality is when you look at it compared to the real one, there, isn't, there are no, I mean, it's no mistaking. When you get near that real one and you talk to somebody who knows what he's doing, you go, man, that's, that's a real Honus Wagner. That's worth $2 million. We're looking at the book of James. It's a small little epistle. It's right behind Hebrews, tucked away in your New Testament. And we're going to go through this book pretty slowly. And the thing I love about the book of James is he doesn't mince words. And you know what he describes? He describes a genuine faith. There's not a lot of theory with the book of James. James is a book that packs a punch. James is a guy who cuts straight to the chase. There's no small talk, you know, there's no kind of polite party uh, banter. James just lays it on you. This is what a genuine faith looks like. And he's going to describe to us the difference between a said faith and a saving faith. He's even going to make the argument in James chapter 2, he's going to say, even the demons of hell believe and shudder. Even the demons of hell believe that there is a God. Did you know that? They know there's a God. But there's a difference between knowing there's a God intellectually and trusting, believing, and walking with God. And so when you walked in, you got hopefully a a chart and uh, some materials. And you'll see right there that uh, the top left-hand corner there that I, I've titled James, True Faith Works. Now notice that I don't, I'm not saying that we're um, faith by works. This is a faith that works. True faith, saving faith, is one that manifests itself by how we live our lives by the way we work. It can be outlined as a tested faith, a true faith, and a tenacious faith. He's going to start and he's going to talk about a tested faith, one that's tested through trials. He's going to talk about a true faith, and a true faith demonstrates itself by action. 
A true faith demonstrates itself in how we control our tongue. A true faith demonstrates itself in how we deal with temptation. This is a very practical book. Now, James was, interestingly enough, he was the half-brother of Jesus. How would you like to grow up with Jesus as your brother? That would be frustrating. I have two brothers, and I would contend most of the time they were wrong, and I was right. That's what brothers do. In this case, Jesus was always right. And James did not believe Jesus as who he says he he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, who he says he was, when Jesus was alive. It wasn't until after Jesus died and was resurrected. He came to faith. And James became the leader in the church in Jerusalem. And if you read the book of Acts, you understand that what ends up happening is, is that Christians were persecuted for their faith. And in Acts chapter 7, specifically, there's a man who dies who's stoned to death And his name is Stephen. And in the chapter closes saying that there's a man named Saul who was in hearty or strong agreement with the death of Stephen. Stephen died a martyr's death. And Saul then in chapter 9 becomes Paul and his life is radically changed. And so throughout the book of Acts, you see how the gospel starts to transform lives even the lives of those who are willing to murder people who take the name of Christ. And that gospel is so great that it changes Paul's life and it changes James's life, the half-brother of Jesus. And people are persecuted for their faith. And you see how the faith spreads from Jerusalem to to Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of of the earth. You see, as they're persecuted, the people scatter. James is the leader. He's the pastor, if you will, of the church in Jerusalem. And as people are starting to be persecuted for their faith, they scatter. James writes this book to his people, his flock, his congregation, saying, hey, guys, this is how we live out our faith in the midst of persecution. Isn't it interesting that persecution really is, and trials really do reveal the true nature of our faith, don't they? I mean, that's really when you see the difference between a said faith and a saving faith. And he's addressing his church that can no longer gather together in a safe place because they're being killed for their faith. He wrote to instruct believers on the nature of a genuine faith and the fruit it produces and the life of true believers, even during trials and suffering. Some of the themes you'll see beyond that are that faith without works is dead. This emphasis on being a doer of God's word and not just a hearer, not just one who can kind of, you know, applaud and kind of amen but one who puts their faith into action. That's why I love the book of James. It's so immensely practical. It's apply, apply, apply. And gang, that's why we're here and gathering early every Thursday morning, not just to become smarter sinners and learn more about the Bible, but to fall more in love with the God who sent his son as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could have a restored relationship with him. We can encourage each other and then make a difference in a world 
that hears a lot of people talking about faith, but not seeing a lot of people applying it in such a way as they go, hey, that's the real thing. There are a lot of Honus Wagner imitations out there. But unfortunately, there are not a lot of genuine Honus Wagners. And there are a lot of people, especially in our area of Dallas, Texas, where it could be popular to claim the name of Christ. But there's a difference between those who have a said faith and have a saving faith. You can see on that chart there, and this is, again, um, what I have put down as key chapters and key verses and key words, but I encourage you to come up with your own chart. This is the way in which I tackle a book. Every time I'm going to study a book, I chart it just like you see right here. But what do you think are the key verses and the key chapters? And you'll have a chance in your small group to discuss this. I also list several unique features. You'll notice that this book was probably the first New Testament book written. And it's very closely aligned. You'll see its Jewish roots with um, the wisdom literature of like Proverbs. It almost reads like the New Testament book of Proverbs. It's proverbial style of writing rather than a continuous line of argument like when we studied the book of Romans. It's pretty argumentative in tone. It's almost like James is anticipating someone's rebuttal. And so he then responds. And you'll notice that there are around 60 imperatives in this book and 108 verses. James is a book and a man of action. You'll see that there are many parallels between James and Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll let you look at that in your groups. So some of it you'll see and you'll go, hey, this sounds familiar. Interestingly enough, this book, if you do any background reading on it, you'll notice one of the people like to point out that Martin Luther dismissed the book of James as an epistle of straw. And when we get to chapter 2, we're going to walk through why Luther was not real excited given his historical context about the book of James. James doesn't mention any individuals who he's writing or ministering to. And as I said, the emphasis is on practical over doctrinal. He uses frequent frequent images of nature and a paradox. There's joy in trials. The lowly can boast in their high position. The rich can take pride in their low position. James is a, is a book, gang, that calls us to live out our faith. It call, challenges us to examine our faith and to ask ourselves, hey, what do I really believe? And he puts a mirror up to us and even uses that language of putting a mirror up to us and says, hey, look in the mirror and ask yourself, when you go through trials, when you're facing temptation, the way in which you speak to other people, the way you live out your faith, the way you apply the word, the way you worry about tomorrow, how you plan, the way you spend your money, the way you handle conflict. What does that suggest about the true nature of your faith? So this is going to be a great study. Today's largely just an introduction because I want to set the table for you so you can have an understanding of where we're going. What are the big picture themes and what this book's all about? Next week, you'll have, you should have gotten um, that 
little study guide, and you'll have something to read for each day. And I would encourage you, please don't put it off, but take that time each day to study with us. And we're going to dive into chapter one and then um, and have a chance again to break out into groups and discuss that. If you signed up, you should have on your name tag a number, and that is the, small, the, uh, the room number of where we're going to ask you to, to go into now. And if you have a number uh, that's in the 200s or 300s, that means you're in the tower right across here. So you'll just take the sky bridge. If you're at seven or eight hundreds, then if you would, you can go up through the elevator right there, um, across the sky bridge. And then the numbers, Bobby, how are the numbers around here? One through 22? If you have one through 22, then you're in this building. Okay. So um, if you do not have a number, then if you would, um, you'll come up here and we've got a group for you to meet in and, um, and then we'll get you in a group next week. Okay. Let me pray for us and I'll let you go. Father in heaven, um, I want to thank you for the men in this room who've been an encouragement to me by the way they've lived out their faith. And Father, uh, the men in here who is example um, has spurred me on in my faith and encouraged me to apply and live out what I say I believe. That, uh, that there is the genuine fruit that comes from their lives and their example. I pray, Father, when people look at us today, that they wouldn't see just a, a said faith, but they would see a faith that's backed up by action. And Lord, there are those of us in this room, just like there in the times in which James lived, where people are paying a real price um, for naming the name of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you'd strengthen our hearts and that we would not despair. We love you, we thank you, and we give you thanks for your grace toward us. In Christ's name, amen.